I believe you said it in your book. You said that good leadership was the norm for the SEALs team, but the opposite was true for the FBI. I'm curious, why do you think that is? I feel like the FBI labels leadership as something and doesn't do the things that they're supposed to. There's too many bad leaders in place mm-hmm. aren't being held accountable yeah. to their behavior. When we say a culture of leadership, it's the things you do and not the labels you put on it. I'll make the caveat, some of the best leaders I ever met were in the FBI. So it's mm-hmm. not to say that there are no exceptional leaders in the FBI. There are. As a matter of fact, it's a few of those great leaders who do the great things that the FBI does. That said, those guys and girls are outliers. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneur's systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 1234567891010 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast today. I'm going to start the podcast out like this. God will not look over you for medals, degrees, or diplomas, but for scars. And this is a quote that is a favorite by today's guest. I thought it was very intriguing, and I decided to share it with you to start off the podcast today. Do you ever wonder how the top elite performers of the world operate on a day-to-day basis? How special ops, Navy SEALs, and special agents think and act? I do, and that's one of the reasons I started this podcast almost six years ago. I wanted to get behind the minds of the most interesting people in the world so I could live a better life myself, and I could share that knowledge with others. We have a treat on today's show. Our guest is one of the world's elite performers. His name is Errol Dobler, and he has 20 years of combined experience as a Navy SEAL and FBI special agent. He served as assistant platoon commander at SEAL Team 4 and platoon commander at SEAL Team 1. After his time with the Navy, Errol joined the FBI, where he investigated international terrorist organizations and also served as a member of the FBI's New York SWAT team. Errol was then attached to the U.S. Army's uh, 75th Ranger Regiment while serving as a special agent for the FBI, and he was later deployed to Afghanistan in 2010 with that Ranger Regiment. Errol participated in extensive combat operations and was presented with the FBI's second highest award of valor, the Shield of Bravery for his actions on the battlefield. Errol left the FBI after 13 years of service to begin his leadership consulting firm, Leader 193, working with Fortune 100 companies, professional sports organizations, tech startups, and executives from around the world. He is the author of The Process, Art, and Science of Leadership, and he's created a leadership process and funnel that we're going to talk about today, along with discussing his background, his mindset, and operation mold. Errol, welcome to the podcast today, man. How are you? I'm fantastic, Chris, and I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Did I do all right on that intro? Is that all accurate? Almost like you've done this before. <laughs> for you, <laughs> no, but for others, yes, definitely. That's right. That's right. No, I, it was all spot on. Thanks. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. I love talking to elite performers um, just because I'm a fan myself and a student as well. And getting behind the mindsets and hearing some of the stories, but then how you are not only articulate, but how you dissect things into processes Mm -hmm. um, in order for any type of individual to use that in their life and live a better life. Like, I think it's really, really cool. And um, let's just start out. Like, where does a guy like you come from, Errol? Where'd you start out in life and, and how did you become the guy that you are today? Yeah, I'm from, uh, I'm a New Yorker, Okay. Uh, born and bred from Long Island, New York, Bay Shore to be specific. And then, you know, went on to attend college at the Naval Academy in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And then before I was a SEAL after the Naval Academy, I was what's called a surface warfare officer. I was on a ship okay. uh, for a couple of years. And I don't talk about that part of my career much, not because it wasn't important. Uh, it's just, it's not what people want to hear about, but being on that ship uh, really weighted a lot into what I do today. But ultimately, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And so I requested that transfer to the SEAL teams, got it, spent time at SEAL Team 4 and SEAL Team 1. And then I I wanted to spend my entire career in the SEAL teams, but I got injured on deployment, medically discharged. So I was in the private sector. I just kind of said, that's this is my fate. It's the way it goes. And I was having a fine time in the private sector until I was on a business meeting in New York City on September 11th, 2001. Mm. And like uh, most people that day, especially if you were in the city or lost somebody like we did, changed the trajectory of, of my life. And I went and got myself medically cleared, joined the FBI. And like you said in the introduction, I spent the better part of the 13 years doing uh, international terrorism. And I loved that. But 
I had some frustrations with FBI leadership and it was just kind of one of those times where I said, well, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. If you're not happy where you are, if the values aren't being met and you feel like you can add value to people in a leadership perspective, then go do it. And that's what I did. Uh, and I met my wife in the FBI and she left a few years ago now and we run the business together. And that's, that's me in a nutshell. Nice. As, as a young man, a young boy, did you know that you wanted to get into the military? Did you have family in the military and that's what inspired yeah, we, you? We did have family in the military, but we wouldn't, we weren't what we would, you would call a military family. You know, nobody did 20 years. The closest was probably my uncle and he was a pilot in Vietnam. Um, but my dad served a few years after the Korean war and I had a couple of uncles as well, but it, it wasn't ingrained in our processes. It was just something that I came across. My neighbors were military family and they just had a pamphlet one day of, of the Naval Academy. And I was just a young kid and there's a little section on the SEAL teams. And this is now in the 1980s or mm -hmm. so. So there's no internet. Nobody really knew much about them. And I think that just kind of stuck with me. Like, who are these guys? It sounds pretty cool. So when the time came, all of a sudden the Naval Academy popped into my head. I was a lacrosse player and Navy has a good lacrosse team. So that was a nice fit. And um, so that, that was it. It was nothing really like just driving me to be in the military. It just kind of worked out that way. You didn't see the Navy SEAL movie with Charlie Sheen. Oh, I did. That. I did indeed. <laughs> but that was, you know, I was already in the Naval Academy at that point. It's funny because okay, yeah. I remember when that movie came out uh -huh. and I got so mad. <laughs> because the, the competition to get in the SEAL teams is very, very tough, especially out of the Naval Academy. And they don't, at least back when I was there, they didn't offer a lot of billets for it. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, you know, now all these guys who have a better GPA than me and they'll step in front of the line, they're going to want to do this because of this stupid movie, which yeah. of course is nonsense because everybody wants to be a SEAL, want to be a SEAL, you know, before that. But yeah, no, that I went and saw that movie and every now and then, Every now and then it finds its way on my TV or computer and I get a good laugh. Out of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. It's one of the things you can't help. <laughs> yeah. Especially see, seeing Charlie Sheen then and now, you know, that's a, <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> As a boy, were you pretty rambunctious and adventurous or what were you like? Yeah, I was, I, I think rambunctious and adventurous are probably good ways to describe me. I had a lot of energy. I grew up in a family that, was a relatively unpredictable environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and you become your environment for better or for worse. And there are a lot of good things, but as far as those two qualities, uh, yeah, I think they kind of lent themselves to some of the challenges that I created for myself, both mm -hmm. as a young man and, and then as an adult, which, you know, I speak a lot about in the book, let people know this is this whole thing everybody can do it, but it, don't think that people who have maybe a nice resume, that there wasn't just some awfulness along the way, because there probably was, you know? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that was a little bit of me growing up, but you know, look, I was pretty average household, right? I'm, we were middle-class mm -hmm. and I make a point to tell people we shouldn't be comparing each other's challenges, right? My challenges were my challenges. They may not have been your challenges and vice versa, but we, we certainly had our share of, of obstacles, but it, all in all, it was a pretty healthy childhood.
when you started your training, so training to become a SEAL is called BUDS, correct? Mm -hmm. yep. When you started the training, um, I think they have an 80% dropout rate or something like that. Like maybe. 70, yeah. 70, okay. 70, 70, it varies, but I think it's right around there, yeah. What do you think served you well to get through that? Because I've heard of the impossible challenges that go through Hell mm -hmm. Week and BUDS training. What do you think kept you in during that time? There's a lot that goes into, you know, being physically fit. That goes without saying, right? Every, everybody there, nobody distinguished themselves physically. Everybody at, at Bud's is pretty impressive physically. But again, we talk about the mindset, your ability to see the good things when there's nothing but bad things to see. But in the end, something like that, something like Bud's, you just can't do it. No matter what your headspace is, what you are physically, if you don't have a burning desire to be a SEAL, that's it. It just, it goes with that. Um, it's just like people who survive in, in the worst conditions, mm -hmm. right? The people who have just the absolute burning desire to live will generally live. Now, that's not to say the people who die in, in tough spots didn't have that same desire, but you get my point. What got me through it was there's just nothing else in the world I wanted more than to be a Navy SEAL. So the other stuff comes a little more easily. Okay. Right. The good mindset, you know, being strong emotionally, being strong psychologically, certainly being strong physically. That's a byproduct of that initial desire. Okay. Was there ever a time during that training where you thought you may quit? No, 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 there wasn't. And, and I think that that goes with everybody who, uh, who makes it. I can tell you definitively, every time there is somebody at Bud's training who mentioned quitting mm -hmm. or mentioned I'm struggling. They quit 100% of the time. I can't think of anybody who said, you know, I'm not so sure this is for me, or I'm not so sure I can make it, who somehow turned it around mm -hmm. and didn't quit. Once they planted that seed in their head, it was over for them. Um, and that's, yeah, that's just the way it was. And, and we had, and I saw a lot of that because our class was pretty unique. We started with about 200. And by the end of hell week, which is early in the training, the training is six months long hell week is I don't know, like week four or five we were down to 10 so you want to talk about i yeah. saw it there was a consistent message for the people who quit who said oh, i don't know about this and then whether it was two minutes later or two days later they always quit one thing that i really admire about you know these teams these special forces teams or people that go to, to battle together is they form what is popularly known as like the band of brothers like this mm -hmm. brotherhood um, that when you risk your life for somebody to save them and be there for them, like you form this, this bond. I wonder if you could kind of explain that a little bit, and then I want to move that into like how we can do this, how normal folks can do this on a regular basis with our businesses and our families. There, there's a lot to unpack, even in that very simple statement that you made. And this notion of band of brothers is, is accurate and it's really accurate, though, because it is a shared value. It's a common culture. And look, I speak a lot about culture, but I make sure I just don't use that word and then move on. Culture, in my mind, is the things that we do. It's not the labels that we put on it, okay? And to do things in combat, especially in the SEAL teams, and I went to war with the Ranger Regiment, so I've always been affiliated with the and New York SWAT, always been affiliated with what I believe the highest level of combat units. There are certain things that we do, okay, to prepare for battle. Now, it always varies a little bit from unit to unit, and that's fine. 
But once you have that shared value of the things you do, you hear people talk about cultural fit, okay? Well, you can't have a cultural fit unless you define what that culture is, what those things that we do are. Right. And then once everybody's moving in concert with those things and we hold people accountable, there's another overused word, accountability. You can't hold someone accountable if they don't know what they're supposed to be accountable to. Right. So those best combat units make it clear. Here's how we do business. And if you don't want to do it that way, that's fine. And we don't mean it in a bad way. You are welcome to leave. Okay, but this is how we do it. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear. And if you don't do it this way, you'll be left behind. So when you have that kind of clarity around what your culture is, the things you do, okay, and then that people will be held accountable to those things. Okay, hey, Chris, we said we do things this way. Why didn't you do it that way? I've just held you accountable. Right. Accountability and consequence are two different things. You may have a good answer. And I can say, oh, okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Let's carry on. Mm -hmm. You may have a bad answer. Okay. Eventually, at some point, if you continue to have a bad answer about why you're not doing the things we say we do, okay, that, that blame starts to fall from your shoulders to my shoulders, the leader's shoulders. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, those are the components, establishing what we do, making it clear, doing them consistently, and then holding people to account when they don't do them. When everybody does that, and then of course, combat in and of itself is a rare bird, right? It is the most extreme combat, the ultimate expression of consequence. If you do things wrong or incorrectly, you're going to have either mission failure, injury, or death. Mm -hmm. So the need to do things correctly from a leadership perspective get magnified a thousand percent, but they're still the same things that any great unit does, right? There's plenty of athletic teams, corporate teams, probably in the arts, right? Who have a band of brothers culture, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's because in my mind, they do those things. So I just kind of went on on a long answer to your question. I, you know, No, no, that's great. I really like that. Was there a moment when you realized, uh, and, and you probably had this before you went into the SEALs, but when you realized that these guys that you were on a team with, that they were more than just friends or team members or even colleagues that they were like brothers and loved ones. Was there a moment where it really hit you? And then did it change the, the way you saw them afterwards? Yes and no. Think about the people who you, aside from family, right? Aside from saying, who do you love? I love my family, right? They, it's almost a separate category, right? Mm -hmm. you, you've got to try to love your family for better, or for worse. But think about outside of that. Okay. Think about the people who you've just stay with. Okay. You're just been friends with forever. And that's just a person you care more about than anything else. In the end, you see them that way. Cause once again, you share those same values. The right. things you do are the same. That's why people begin to feel that way about each other. So in a place like buds or the seal teams in general, it's very specific. Here's how we do it. And it's a very high bar. And when you're just with people who do that, you, you have a natural affinity for them. And then, of course, like we said, if you end up going to combat, right, even the training for combat brings you that much closer. But now you are exercising those values, exercising the things you do, seeing the results. OK, mm -hmm. and it just it does continue to get uh, you closer and closer to people. I, I have not been as connected to the SEAL community as I as I wanted to be after I left. And I plan on changing that. But I, I promise you, I've met SEALs in just my daily life. 
and you just kind of look at each other like, you know, cool, man, I got you, right? Whether I, whether I spend a whole bunch of time with you or not, there's just something where I'm like, I just feel a little better that you're here because right. I know you. You're from the same right? tribe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's, that's, that's kind of my assessment on that whole thing. I'm curious. I think, did you spend seven years in the SEALs? Is that? I was about eight. Yes. Yeah. About seven years in the SEAL teams. Yeah. What was the difference between your mindset saying going on your first mission? So your young man going on Mm -hmm. your first mission versus the mindset that you had on your very last mission, getting ready to leave. It's, it comes with experience, right? You know, as a young, especially as a young SEAL officer, the, the biggest concern there is, you're in charge of a bunch of seasoned warriors, right? You're generally one of the youngest people in the platoon, certainly with the least experience, yet you're in charge. So the ability to so try to- Can you explain that a little bit? Like yeah. on your first mission, you were in charge of the other SEALs? So a SEAL platoon is made up of anywhere between 14 and 16 members. Okay, okay? yeah. And two of the members are officers. You're, okay. you're, you're a platoon commander and you're assistant platoon commander. Okay. And then- then the rest are your enlisted men. Okay. okay. So if, if you're not familiar with how the military and that structure works, officers are in charge. They're the leaders. The enlisted men are the people we lead. Mm-hmm. Okay. But like most things, right, you've got an enlisted man who's been in the SEAL teams for 20 years. Right. But because he's enlisted, he still reports to me, even though that I've been in the Navy for two years. Okay. Okay. It's just, that's, that's the way that's it's the way set it up, right? Yeah. You have your your designated roles. So as you come in as a young man, as an officer who's in charge of some of these battle hardened men, been in, you know, you go through a lot in your mind. Will will they think I'm worthy? How am I supposed to act? How am I going to gain their respect? If I don't know half of, not even half, 90% of what they know. Okay. So Mm -hmm. your mindset changes in a lot of different ways, but mostly based in confidence, your enthusiasm, is is still the same Mm -hmm. but from the first operation that you go on you're just like this wide-eyed bushy-tailed right they teach you buds training nobody really talks about buds training in in the seal teams because it's just a rite of passage it doesn't mean anything okay okay it's just it's a requirement you learn all your stuff obviously when you get to your platoon and, and and the advanced training that you go to but even then until you actually do operations you can't possibly know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mindset, there's a lot of different portions to that the enthusiasm, the desire to do the best you can, the desire to be there for your teammates, to set a good example, that, that always stayed. Mm-hmm. But your ability to see things, right? Make better decisions, right? Um, uh, uh, kind of command that greater respect, you know, that changes just with time and experience. So there's two very different people going into the first operation and the last operation. The enthusiasm is still there, but then all of the other stuff is just completely different. I think from the the special ops people and a lot of military people that I've met, they mature faster, right? They mm-hmm. have to. Right? Yeah. Um, I matured very slow. Like I had a really easy 20s, you know, had a lot of fun. But the special ops people that I've met, the, their maturity is rapid um, because you're seeing life and death in the most scary situations on a regular basis, right? So what about the, like the maturity, the, the arrow on day one of going into the, yeah. the battlefield and the maturity levels on when he was leaving? 
the seals. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. And I would break that into two different areas. Mm -hmm. There is the professional maturity, and then there's the personal maturity. And so, yes, I would agree with you that a professional maturity um, moves faster. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, like you said, the ability to see things, have confidence in making those decisions at a split second based on your first glimpse of what's happening. And now you can see more things because, you, again, you literally are seeing more because okay. you're slowing down. So from that standpoint, yes. And, and again, experience does that, right, for you. I mean, I, I can remember... <laughs> I remember the first time I was with uh, my new platoon and we were out at land warfare training and we were doing what's just called immediate action drills. Mm -hmm. And it's just a simulation of your squad getting ambushed and you have to get into a firefight and how do you maneuver around that? And, you know, so I was just sitting there like just shooting, blah, 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 right. You know, and then they index like, okay, sir, you know, you just kept your platoon there, your squad there the entire time. Everybody's dead. You didn't move once. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but I was shooting. And he was, that's <laughs> not your job to shoot. Your job is to lead. So all of these little things, right, mm -hmm. that happen, um, you know, then I remember I was like, okay, we did it again. And I'd go to my, you know, one of my leading petty officers. I think I'm going to, I think we should flank, right? And he looked at me like, well, then flank. And then by that time, it was way too late, right? So didn't have the confidence to just say, that's my move. And I'm doing it. I, I can explain it mm -hmm. on the after action. Those things come with time, right? So by the end, you're not even thinking. You already know what the moves are to make and the counter moves and so on and so forth. Now, for me personally, though, where I struggled was the personal maturity, right? I allowed, just as we started this discussion, some of that stuff that I grew up with some of that unpredictability around an unpredictable environment, mm -hmm. um, not being aware of emotions to lead me to do things that got me in trouble unnecessarily, right? And then, then by definition, as a leader, you're just not setting that good example. If in your personal life, you're making those bad decisions, whether it's out having beers mm -hmm. with the guys or the decisions you're making in your personal relationships, when you're a leader, people will look at you. They'll give you some grace, but they'll also say, okay, that's allowed. Mm -hmm. Apparently I'm allowed to go make a fool out of myself here, here, and here and make bad decisions in spite of the fact that on the battlefield, well, you make really solid decisions. You're really good. <laughs> and that was, that was the kind of dichotomy that I went through as a Naval officer. Uh -huh. How Errol can you be so good operationally, but just do some of these things that you do uh -huh. in your personal life? How is that possible? So again, to your question, Maturity from the special operations folks, I would say, yeah, from a professional standpoint, there is a, a hockey stick card, right? It, go, it yeah. goes up. Personally, we're still just human <laughs> beings, you know, yeah. where some folks will be better at it than others. And that was kind of my personal challenge. I think you talk about this in the book. What was the shifting point for you to, to make you realize that you needed to figure out your personal maturity as well as the professionals? It, it, it was after I left the SEAL teams. So I didn't, you know, I didn't get kicked out, right? I got medically discharged. I got injured. The doctors were like, look, you can stay in if you want, but you're not operating anytime soon. We don't know if these things are going to heal, but you're yeah. welcome to stay in, add value in an administrative capacity in any way you can. And there's, there's honor in that. Right. right. Lots of guys do that. Lots of guys had worse injuries than I did and stayed in. Okay. Um, I just felt like it was better for me because I was going through some things personally, right? I was in a terrible marriage. Mm -hmm. um, that was 
feeding into or overlapping with my professional stuff. It was just a mess. And I just, things had gotten so sideways on me. I said, I just, I'm going to go because my reputation now is being hurt based on this personal relationship that I've gotten myself into. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the long ride home from California to back to New York, there's a lot of time to reflect on those. And, you know, while it wasn't my fault necessarily that I was leaving, I thought to myself, but I'm not leaving like I want to leave, right? Mm -hmm. I'm leaving with a lot of asterisks. And why would I behave? Why would I make those decisions? And now I am no longer this thing that I wanted to be. And I just can't have it this way anymore. And that was the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? So I was, what was I, 32 when I left the SEAL teams, right? Okay. Old as far as (laughs) <laughs> you know, op- seal operators go, right? It's right. kind of like professional sports, but, you know, still a relative baby in life. That's where I kind of started to develop this process, right, of leadership. As I looked back and I said, what were the things that I did initially? What were the adjustments that I tried to make without really having a full knowledge that I was making these adjustments, right? And I was like, process. It's a process. And it took a long time. And that, you know, for me to get to a more stable place as a human being. Mm -hmm. And even now, the more you know, the more you realize how much further you have to go. But what I did see was these changes are process oriented. They have to be. Because I have to know what I'm doing and where I'm doing it for me to go back and say, how did this result get bad? Oh, I didn't do this thing as part of the process. That's where I missed it. So that's kind of the story of this personal transformation. And it was tough. It was tough to swallow. But in the end, I think it served me very well. I want to talk about your FBI career here in a second, Mm -hmm. but just a couple more things about your time with the SEALs. How many missions did you do over those eight years? So I was in the SEAL teams in the 90s. So name the war in the 90s. There wasn't one. Right. Right. So 90 SEALs were ready to go to war at all times. <laughs> not doing so much. Yeah. But not doing so much. So oddly enough, the operation or the rehearsal that I got uh, injured on was a rehearsal for an operation. We we're going to do a ship shakedown. But me and uh, all the, the people who were in the teams during that time period, we didn't really see a whole lot of combat. Now, mm-hmm. the ironic part is when I went to Afghanistan as a special agent with the FBI, attached to the Ranger Regiment. I'm not even sure how many operations we went on. I was there for four months. And I think, you know, we averaged an operation every other day, you know, every oh, wow, third yeah. day or something like that. So certainly the combat that I didn't see necessarily as a SEAL, it got made up later. Yeah. So the nineties were a bad economy for SEALs, right? For Terrible. <laughs> yeah. T- right. And, and, and then it went the opposite way as it's you know meant to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got into the Navy after the first Gulf War was over 90, you know, in 91. That, and would that last like two hours. Yeah. You had some guys who saw some action there and that, that, you know, they were valuable, but a lot of the guys uh, where we were getting our practical experience were still Vietnam SEALs. They were still a bunch of guys who were in the teams in Vietnam and they were still around. How long was your break between SEALs and the FBI? Was that a few years? It's about four years. Four yeah. years. Okay. About four, three or four years, something like that. What made you decide to go into the FBI? So after 9-11, I applied to all the, the usual suspects, right? I applied to the FBI, the CIA, and whoever the heck else was out there. And the FBI just kind of, they were the most aggressive in putting the application through and things like that. So I was just like, oh, I'll go with them. 
And, you know, knowing that they had a great mission and that I could then actually get into the fight that I wanted to, which was counterterrorism. It wasn't that tough of a decision. Um, the CIA, I think, would have been great. Just the FBI was moving faster. So one thing that I found unique, you said this, I believe you said it in your book, you said that good leadership was the norm for the SEALs team, but the opposite was true for the FBI. I'm curious why, why do you think that is? It's hard to say, you know, and I, I get asked that question a lot and I expect to get asked a lot because I said yeah. it, right? Yeah. It, it stands out. Um, and I always, I'll make the caveat, I'll make it every time. Some of the best leaders I ever met were in the FBI. So it's mm -hmm. not to say that there are no exceptional leaders in the FBI. There are. As a matter of fact, it's a few of those great leaders who do the great things that the FBI does, right? That said, those guys and girls are outliers. When you get a good leader in the FBI that you're working for, you're like, thank God. And really, <laughs> and great stuff can happen with a great leader because you have a lot of autonomy in the FBI yeah. to create the work that you create, whereas at the opposite in the military, right? You're just, you're right. told you're going right. on this operation. You don't get to pick your operations, but why then is it like that? I just still can't come up with a good answer. When we say a culture of leadership, it's the things you do and not the labels you put on it. I feel like the FBI labels leadership as something and doesn't do the things that they're supposed to. There's too many bad leaders in place mm -hmm. aren't being held accountable yeah. to their behavior. Okay. Um, I think we're promoting people. And I think they started to change this since I left. They promote people way too early. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, they say, oh, there's an opening. Oh, you've only had two years in. Yeah, you can be in charge. I think that's wrong. I think giving people the option to opt out of leadership positions, even though they are uniquely qualified, that's something that I would change, right? Because people love working cases. Mm -hmm. But like, no, you're a great case agent. People respect you. You help everybody. I'm sorry if you don't want this, but you're in charge here because we need you in charge here. I think okay. there needs to be more of that, putting the right people in the right seats. So there's just, a, there's a lot of things that I could point to, but I think they've just got, a, they've got a long way to go towards accountability in making it clear what leaders do, what the standards are for FBI special agents, and then holding them to that. That's the best answer I've got. My assumption is from an outsider, and I could be completely wrong, is that it seems like an organization like the FBI might be more uh, political and connected with like network and status. So if you know the right person, FBI, maybe you can move up faster or you come from the right type. Of, I don't know. That could be wrong. Whereas the SEALs, it's like you have to operate at X, Y, and Z. If not, people die and there's more, account like you said, accountability there and thus better leadership. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Right? Well, so I would, you know, yes and no. I, I don't yeah. think, yeah, I don't think as a blanket statement, I don't think that would be accurate. Right. Cause that, okay. that, that still exists everywhere. Right. Okay. Somebody, two people being of equal stature and, and one person knows a couple people, they're probably going to get the nod. Right. Okay. That's just life. So I wouldn't, it never struck me as something that was uh, endemic in that culture. And look, I use the word combat, not in a loose term, but I say, look, combat, it, there's many forms of combat in my mind, mm -hmm. okay? And if you don't do things right in combat, right, all the consequences I said, mission failure, injury, or death. And in my mind, as an FBI special agent, if you're going into a, bad, a rough neighborhood, okay, and people are going to recognize who you are, and I go knocking on doors, and I'm not prepared, I consider that combat. Because if you do things wrong in that situation, 
mission failure, injury, or death. Right. So there's a lot of places for combat in the FBI. Okay. Now, I think that there's a lot of risk aversion in the FBI. I would say, you know, now that now as we talk about this, this is starting to come a little clearer to me because I haven't talked about it in a while. Mm-hmm. I think that's a problem. Oh, if this goes wrong or I try this, not, not even somebody's going to get hurt. Like it just, it may not work and I'll look bad. So yeah. we're not going to do it. There's a lot of that. And that's a problem. I was a pretty aggressive special agent and I got myself into a lot of, I guess, high risk situations for the people that I investigated, which is good, right? Those are the people we should be investigating. They're dangerous. Uh-huh. And, you know, I had done an undercover operation. I wasn't the undercover. I ran the operation and the undercover and I were, were very close to each other. And, you know, we would talk a lot about the situations he was being put in. Yeah. And we would go through the, the process. Okay. What will we do if this happens? What will we do if that happens? And most importantly, undercover, are you good with this? Cause if you're not, it's not happening. Right. Okay. And by and large, he was good mostly because we really went through the processes. What can go wrong? Can we mitigate everything that can go wrong to make it okay for you? And I remember I got into a heated argument with, you know, one of the, the leaders who said, no, we're not going to do this because you're going to get somebody killed. And I said, I, I resent that statement because here's all the things that I just explained to you, how we're going to mitigate all the danger. Mm-hmm. And then I finally said it. And I said, oh, by the way, this is what people pay us for, mm-hmm. to put our lives at risk for the greater good of the community, for the greater good of the country, for the greater good of the safety of our citizens. Mm-hmm. That's what our, we're paid for. Right. Okay, we're not paid to go in blindly and get ourselves killed because we didn't plan properly. That's right. not what we're paid for. But we're paid for to mitigate as much risk as we can to our people and then put ourselves out there for the greater good. And the fact that statement got looked at like I was some careless rebel, that's when I knew I'm not in the right spot. Mm. I'm just simply not in the right spot. How can we all not reset ourselves after I said that? Right. How is that not? That's what we do. We are law enforcement officers. Right. We put ourselves at risk. Right. You would never hear something like that in the SEAL teams. Mm. What you would hear is, we can lose people here. Have we done everything to mitigate the risk? Let's go through the plan. Let's pick it apart at every single level. And then let's look at the accepted risk that's left. Yeah. That's, that's the way it's done. Um, and so that was, you know, again, as we talk about going back to your question about why is that leadership like that? You know, those are just some examples. Um, now the great leaders, they got it. Yeah. They would say, this is a great plan. I like the target. It's bold. Let's go through how are we making sure the undercover is going to be okay? Yeah. And if you couldn't answer their questions and they said, you're not, you're not ready to go. Well, I can live with that as an aggressive person, right? I can live with it. Like you asked me a bunch of questions that I didn't have the answers to. I need to get the answers. That's Mm -hmm. fair. I can live with that, but let's not even ask the questions and then let's not assume the risk. That was a problem for how far along in your FBI career did that happen? It was towards the end. Towards yeah, the end. it was towards yeah. like, so, and again, it happened enough, but it's not until it starts to happen so much, right? Anybody who's just had enough of whatever it is, you, they don't have enough after the first instance of yeah. something that they don't like. 
yeah. right? You, you kind of look at it and say, did I do something here? Or is this a one-off? And then the more you see it, you say, okay, this is kind of the way things are done. Yeah. And that's where I was. So when it happened that time, I just had had enough. I yeah. said, I'm, I'm out. I, I can't do this anymore. And that, that was it. And, I, and, and again, let me caveat. I loved the job of a special agent. I loved it. I loved every part of it. It was that stuff that I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with anymore. Yeah. Can you tell us about your, and I don't know if you can or not, but your scariest moment between either your time with the SEALs, the, the FBI or the Rangers? The injury that I got, you know, medically discharged on, I, I fell uh, 30 feet from one moving boat to another moving boat. Mm -hmm. And it was scary in that that's what happened. Right. Uh, and there was a lot of things going on. I thought I was going to fall in between the two boats. And one of the boats, you know, was a massive tanker. And when that, if that happens, you just get sucked right into the propellers and you, you become fish food. So that knowledge initially was bothersome. But it's funny. A funny thing about that story is you know, I was so sure that I was going to die that there was kind of a calm that also came over me. So it wasn't that <laughs> fear that holds you. It's just like, oh, wow, this is bad, man. I can't even believe this is it. Uh -huh. And so it's a different kind of feeling. Did that hit you as you were right as you were as, falling, or, or as as soon as that ladder broke mm -hmm. and I went down, there was just your mind moves fast. It's everything they say is kind of true. Things slow down. Okay. The, the number of things that I thought about on the way down was uncanny. Um, for you know what you fall thirty feet. What is it? 10, 10 feet per second. Not the rate long. is that you fall. It's not that long. And uh, again, the number of things I thought about was crazy. And uh, so maybe from a standpoint of, did that really scare me? Maybe that's the wrong answer. The things that scare you are the things where you have time to think about them and react. And it's just not happening so fast. And then you get to think of all the other consequences. So I, I do remember in Afghanistan, we were going to fast rope onto a target. And I do remember thinking to myself, why does the prospect of fast roping onto this target scare me so much? So it, what is it, fast roping exactly? Fast roping is when they you're in a helicopter, they throw a rope out of the helicopter, it's gonna, and you just you hang on with your hands and you slide down, right? Okay. You got a bunch of guys on the, you know, people on the rope, and you know, because look, I knew why it was it was scary. It was the terrain was awful, right? And like the idea of of, of doing it on that terrain, the reason you fast rope into an area like that is because the enemy's all around there, so yeah. you are sitting duck. As you're sitting on on the rope, oh, wow. so I guess if I had to, at first glance, think of was there something that scared me? The knowledge that that was the plan, and we had several hours to chew on it, right? So you just got to sit there and think about all the things that can go wrong. <laughs> right. And I was looking around, and I and I do remember I went to one guy, and everybody was a little, everybody had kind of a ooh feel about it, and I just did, you know, one of the guys I was close with, I said, man. For some reason, this is scaring the shit out of me. He goes, you too? <laughs> I said, yeah. Now, that said, uh -huh. everybody was on, right? The plan was, it was a good plan. Uh -huh. We ended up not doing it, the fast rope portion of it. And maybe it's because, you know, who knows? Maybe because everybody Scared too many guys. Yeah, scared too many. And the, and the guy who was in charge, of the, the overall charge, uh -huh. was like, even I don't feel good about this. And I'm not <laughs> So uh -huh. there's a little bit of that. But, you know, that's, I, I would say, you know, off the top of my head, 
I do remember that actually putting my heart in my throat for a little while. But, you know, I was still going to do it. You know, it was not, there was never a question of, well, I'm not doing it. Right. Remember? Were you fast roping into like a surrounded area that all the enemies were basically surrounded? The reason you go in, the reason you would have to do something like that is because you want to be on target quickly. Yeah. Okay. And you want to be on target quickly to get the element of surprise. So normally we would patrol in, we would walk in hours, right? right? So we would land really, really far away, safe. And then we would patrol into the areas, you know, then kind of surround it and, and then hit it that way. Sometimes that's not an option, right? You just won't get the element of surprise for whatever reason with that walk in. So then you need to just hit, you need to have a dynamic entry. Right. And if it's in a place where the helicopter can't land because of the terrain is such, then you throw the fast rope back right. and that's okay. the next fastest way. So that's why you would do it that way. Um, you need that dynamic entry to gain the element of surprise because it's the only way to do it. I want to ask about gut feelings because it sounds like that may be an instance where you have gut feelings. I've watched the movie Lone Survivor and read the book as well. And they said all the guys that went in on that mission, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but... Mm -hmm. Um, all of them had a bad gut feeling about it, a bad intuition, you know. So how much does that play a role in how you operate and what you decide to do? Maybe not just when you're in the special forces and FBI, but also in business and life. Gut feeling is important and people call it intuition, right? right. And, you know, I've got a bad feeling, a bad gut. You've got to pay attention to that stuff. You just do. Now, I can't speak specifically. Look, I read Lone Survivor, saw the movie as well. I know the story and they're heroes. Now, if I had to speculate and, and God forbid anybody, I'm off base and anybody listening to this is Errol's criticizing the guys from Lone Survivor. I'm not. <laughs> okay. okay. But it was early, right? That was early. Right. And it, like I told you in the nineties, there's not a lot of combat experience going around. Right. Yeah. So those early operations for everybody, the whole military, not just the SEAL teams, it was all kind of a new thing. Yeah. Right. If you look at it, those guys didn't have helmets on. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't even think they had, maybe they had body armor. I can't remember, but it, you, in the nineties, you didn't patrol with body armor and helmets. You had your floppy cap. And if you had body armor, it's like, no, that's too heavy. Right. We have to be fast. Okay. Okay. And then they realized we can still be fast, but we need that's to save correct. some lives. We all need yeah. to be wearing body armor. You know, it evolved. Yeah. So if there was maybe a bad feeling about that operation, it just may have simply been from the fact that there was not enough experience to build on. Okay. Right. To feel good about it. Okay. That operation was probably done a gazillion times after that. Yeah. But with experience, with people now remembering, okay, now this is combat. I got it. And now we're learning lessons and things like that. A lot of that stuff was theoretical, right? No final consequence. Again, ultimate expression of consequence. So if I had to guess, if it's true that they, they said they all had, you know, had a bad feeling about the op, knowing SEALs, knowing the mindset, and having had bad feelings before, it was probably due to the fact that we've not seen this enough to feel good about it. Okay. Okay. If I had to guess. Now that said, that goes to process, right? Process is process. If we're not feeling good about something... And we can't point back why we don't feel good about it. There, there's a problem, okay? That intuition needs to be processed. I guarantee you those guys did everything they could from a planning and training standpoint to be as prepared for that operation as they could. That right. I can tell you 
without having talked to any of them. I just know that for a fact, because that's right. the way SEALs operate. But again, there's just some things that they weren't sure of, they hadn't seen. Um, and that that might have been what lent to the uh, uneasy feeling going in. Yeah. How do you use, so when you get a bad gut feeling or want to use your intuition, say in your business, like building your business or working with your family uh, in your personal life, um, what are some signs for you that says, oh, the, this is something I shouldn't do or, oh, I know this is something I should do? So, you know, again, putting your intuition to process is, it sounds, it sounds weird. Okay. okay? But here's what, here's what I mean by that <clears throat> from a business standpoint. I feel like I know how things should be done. I feel like I know why I make the decisions I make. But I can't hold people accountable to my intuition, right? right. They should know that that's what I'm thinking. No, <laughs> they shouldn't know that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And I can't teach people my intuition. Let's just say I'm really good at what I'm doing. Well, it's my job as a leader to train as well, right? And get everybody on the same page. So that's what my process is does it that I have in the book, the process, art and science of leadership. I believe that the elements I put forward are present for every situation you will ever face. Okay. And if you go through and you say, how am I feeling? Recognize gut feeling, right? How am I acting? Is it the way I want to be acting? I'm now conscious of my culture and have I established the behaviors that I want for myself? For my culture. So those two competing things, what do you do naturally? And then wait a second, what do I want to do? Okay. okay. And then what is my plan in, in the big scale and in the micro scale to get this thing going forward the way I want it? You need those elements in everything. If you look at any situation you're in and the result is bad, I can tell you, you can either look at you were unaware of your emotions mm -hmm. and how you were acting on your emotions. And therefore you had some random action or random mm -hmm. result. Okay. You didn't establish how you want to be behaving or right. We act, how do we do in moments of stress? We make sure that we keep our voice low, that we're calm, that we prior, we look at the, the things that are happening and we prioritize them properly, right? We are generally methodical about our actions. Right? Whatever the behaviors you have, we are patient in how we listen to each other, whatever you've established. Okay. That's fine. It'll be specific to your environment and what you need as a team or an individual. Mm -hmm. or you didn't plan properly, right? Maybe you had all those first couple elements, but then you just acted without hitting all the elements of the planning process, right? right? I, I, it's, I just think it's foolproof because now every time I coach people or teams and something goes awry, so let's go through the process. What'd you miss? They always miss something, mm -hmm. always, right? So now what I'll tell people is, that's now your intuition. You've just learned how to articulate your gut feeling and your intuition. And okay. now you can teach it because it's going to be a little different for, for everybody, right? What they're afraid of, how they react to certain things. But if we go through a process at the end result, we can see where things went right and where things went wrong. And then we get to make targeted adjustments. So that's, that's my thoughts on intuition and gut feeling. Can we talk about the steps in those process? I think you have like five leadership steps and then the smack, mm -hmm. um, which is it, the system, it, right? Of yeah, the planning it. process. Yeah. So look, the, the elements of the leadership process, what I just described, and everybody listening, you just think to yourself, when does this not apply? Mm -hmm. If you walked into a room to have a conversation with your child or your significant other, or your boss or your colleague, or, what, or you're ready to go out to combat, the same elements apply. 
Okay, and, and, and process means they go in order. Okay, it's a process. Um, emotional awareness and recognition, that's it. Emotions drive our actions. And if you are unaware of your emotions, then you are unaware of your actions, and then you are getting random results. First, that's, that is the, the base layer of this whole thing. If emotions drive our actions, which they do, actions, the things we do make up our culture. So when I say cultural awareness and recognition, right? Awareness and recognition around the first two elements. We have to see what it is for better or for worse, mm -hmm. okay? I get insecure. That is my emotion. And when I'm insecure, I withdraw and do diarrhea of the mouth. I have to be aware of that, okay? And I have to not judge it. So now that I've seen that, now I say, okay, now that I've observed these things about myself, what I do, my culture, based on how I feel, my emotions, how do I wanna behave? What are the behavioral changes that I wanna make? Guidelines for behavior. There'll be a couple based on what you've seen, okay? And we can all agree, this is why this process is for everything, everywhere. Because we can all agree that we need to be aware of emotions, right? Based on what I've just said, makes right, sense. Right. But Chris, your emotions are going to be different than my emotions. And your personal culture based on those are going to be different from mine. Yeah. And the behaviors that you decide you need to really implement in your life to get better, to make targeted change are going to be different than mine. But let's all agree, we have to go through that, those things yeah. to make the targeted change. And in the end, leaders drive mission accomplishment, right? So to drive mission accomplishment, we need planning. And I just took the planning process from the SEAL teams, right? The acronym is SMACC, S-M-A-C-C-C, -C -C, right? Watered it down, modified it, made it very easy to understand and applicable. If, you want, if you're wanting to accomplish something, follow these elements, okay? And you're going to be in good shape. You just are. It's, it's born of blood, literally. Um, so, and then the last element is, is the resistance. Why do I say that? process, art, and science. Well, I just talked about the process. Those are the elements. The art is inside each one of those elements. It's all going to be different for the individual. We have to follow that element of the process. The science is this, and I, this was an add-on to the book. Uh, I just happened to be studying how the brain works for behavioral change when I was writing the book. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh my God, I'm like, my process follows the process the brain goes through to rewire itself. Yeah. Literally, when we as human beings acknowledge our emotions, right? I'm doing this thing and I do it over and over and over again. I don't even realize it's in my subconscious. And now we realize it's based in an emotion that we didn't acknowledge perhaps. The brain automatically, science tells us, is the brain automatically starts to send new chemicals to the body. Yeah. We're physiologically changing ourselves. And then when we recognize how we're behaving, that's more recognition. The brain starts to change itself more. Then we decide how we want to behave. The brain changes even more, rewires itself even stronger. And then we make a plan and execute it. The brain rewires itself. That's how it works. Now, I say the resistance is the final part because what I tell people is, now that you know, if you follow this process, you are literally rewiring your brain, mm -hmm. okay? And you fall off track from an individual level, right? You get to give yourself a little grace, little patience, not an excuse, but say, I'm trying to change my physical and chemical makeup of my body. This is hard, okay? I'm not not doing it right away because I suck or because I don't care or because I'm stupid. It's none of that. Yeah. You're doing something really hard. 
Okay, and you get to say, all right, it's hard. Let me, let me reset here. Same thing for a team. If you present this to your team, which I recommend everybody does, you're trying to change the behavior of a group. Yeah. Okay, so when they don't necessarily come to you with their plan, when you ask them to, you can think to yourself, all right, this is new. I don't have to, Chris, you're fired. You want more thing like this? I, I can look at it from a different perspective. Right right? On why somebody didn't do something that I asked initially. So yeah, that's the process, the art and the science. There it is. So part of the cult, your, your training is having uh, companies um, put this into their businesses, into their business model. So people, and I've seen this many times, like we have masterminds, we've, I've coached people for a couple of years. Um, I see a business when there's no systems and processes, right? And mm -hmm. it's just kind of fly by your pants. The leader may be an awesome entrepreneur, um, but struggle with communication with the team or mm -hmm. um, knowing the boundaries. So like as a SEAL, as an FBI agent, um, you've created, you've come up with this process that this is the boundaries, the guidelines that, right. that people have when they have businesses. And, and when there's something that's out of whack, you can say, Oh, did we forget this piece of right? That's and right. and you said, Absolutely. okay, let's go back to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, what I do is, you know, again, I, I never really throw a cliche statement out there and let it sit. I, I define it all the time because I think that's important today. Right. So when I say I empower people, and leaders, better human beings, become the best version of yourself. Mm -hmm. Here's how, because I provide you with a process that is gonna let you decide the things that you need to do to get better as an individual or as a team. My process allows you to make the decisions. I don't come with you with the five great things leaders do. Right. I, I, we can all do that though. They're never wrong. I've never read a leadership book and they outline five things that leaders do and said, that's not, that's, that's bullshit. That's not right. They're all right. Uh -huh. The problem with, with relying on those types of things is it may not be in context. It may not be specific to what you need as an individual. You may need something very special and unique, and you're only going to get that and recognize it through this process, emotional awareness, right? Now you make, I have empowered you to make the proper adjustment because it's yours. So that's what I love about my process in coaching people. I never tell anybody what to do. Right. I just ask them, where are you in the process? Right. Where are we? Oh, you haven't identified your behavioral guidelines? Well, that's why it's going awry because everybody's yeah. just acting however they want. <laughs> right? If you want something, you have to define it, make it predictable, right? And then, we'll, then we're off to the races. Now we can make some more adjustments along the way. So that's, that's how my system, my process you know, as best as I can determine is, is a little unique and different. Yeah. I like that. I, I, I like the system you, you've set up because working with all the businesses and entrepreneurs I've worked with before, I see it's such a, it's, it's a need um, because people will just start up a business and within five years, three years or so, they have something really good going, but they don't have that leadership training and systems down to, yeah. to handle that team growth and communication. One thing that I, I do want to chat about is I think you're a Wim Hof, um, trainer, right? You yep. certified trainer. Yep. Uh, I'm an ice bather. We have an ice bath in our backyard here. Like, well done. Yeah. Been doing <laughs> it for years. Love it, man. And, um, and you talk about in the book too, why you use, um, 
cold therapy and why you use that with your clients as well, but also with controlling the emotions and then the rewiring of the brain. So mm -hmm. could you explain that process a bit for us? So yeah, I sure understand? can. Yeah. yeah. So look, the, the, the process that I just outlined, right, makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. The question is, let's just start with the first one, emotional awareness and recognition, right? How do you practice that? Right? We, we have lives. We have things we need to do. We get caught up in the minutia, right? Practicing that basic element of human recognition, I don't even know what the term is, takes practice. Mm -hmm. How do you practice emotional awareness and recognition with zero consequence, right? How do you practice cultural awareness and recognition with zero consequence? How do you decide which behavior you want, right? Well, there's one thing. If you are standing in front of an ice bath, Okay. And your intention is to recognize your emotions. Guess what? You are not going to have to search for them. They will be right <laughs> in your face. Okay. Right, right. It's just cold. It just amplifies everything you do. You can't hide from it. Right? right. I'm a meditator, right? I'm a breather. I'm all that stuff. I believe in it to, to the nth degree. Okay. But I can tell you this, if we're all going to be honest with each other, some of my meditative and breathing sessions are better than the others. Of course. Right? Sometimes I just can't get the focus. Sometimes I'm still thinking about my to-do list. Sometimes even if my intention is to understand emotion or create an emotion in my body, right? We call that manifestation. Sometimes it's just not happening. Yeah. Doesn't exist that way in an ice bath, right? If your intention is to do that, you can't hide from it. You will just either decide consciously not to do it uh -huh. and get out, fine, conscious decisions, Right. But you're not going to go back and go, gosh, sometimes this just isn't working for me. Yeah. So that's that's the beauty of the cold. Take that in any one of my elements. Right. You want to establish what you do. Right. It's a very hard question to ask. What do I do? We do a lot of things. Right. Do I draw conclusions about what I do? But pay attention before you get into an ice bath in the ice bath afterwards. What do you do? Are you walking around? Let's just say it's cold shower, right? It's just called cold exposure, right? Are you walking yeah. around in circles, figuring out something else to do before you, you know, just anything besides getting in. Uh -huh. oh, I think I need to look at my fingernails. I haven't really <laughs> clipped those in a while, right? <laughs> right, whatever. Right. When you get in, what are you doing? Are you making a big show of it? Oh, F this, F that, rah, you know, <laughs> clenching, right? What are you doing? Uh -huh. When you get out, what are you doing? Are you... Again, still continuing to make a big show. Are you weeping? That was the worst thing ever. Do you have to call everybody and brag about what you did? Whatever it is, without judgment. But if you're looking to establish these things and understand it, make them a habit, the ice bath is the only way to go, right? And you're also going to find that some of the things you do under stress, because that's what cold exposure is, you're putting yourself under stress. Some of the things you do will mirror very closely and disturbingly the things you do in your day-to-day -day under stressful situations, mm -hmm. right? And so again, now we get to decide how do we want to behave in this thing, right? I want to be calm. I want to have my breath. I don't want to make a big show of it. Now we've got a behavior to work on, Yeah. right? Without consequence, practice it in the ice bath, practice it in the cold, in the cold shower. And again, the plan, the, the whole thing, it all works. So that's why I use it. It's, and I'll be honest with you, not everybody will do it, right? Most of my stuff, it, well, I was doing remote 
like to say this, I was doing remote before remote was cool. <laughs> you know, if you have clients, you can't just be in person with everybody, right? So we right. set up the whole remote thing in the video series. And I don't have control over people, right? I'll say at our weekly call, based on what I've asked you to do, had the shower go. Yeah, I didn't do that. All right. You know, what, what can yeah. I do? I can't do anything, right? All I can yeah. say is, well, here's why we're doing it. It's not a, it's not a macho drill. It's certainly not an ego drill. It's a drill to work the thing. Yeah. So the people who do it, they, they get a lot out of it. The people who don't, and they can't figure out things that are wrong with them. I say, well, look, maybe we'll start with you refuse to do the cold exposure. Yeah. Maybe that's a place for us to start. Let's look at why we were refusing to do something like that right now. We can, so it's just a, it's a no, it's a no lose proposition. So that's kind of, again, the long explanation of, of how I employ the Wim Hof method to my leadership process. That's great. You, you did a uh, hundred or you did an ice bath every day for a year. Is that right? So, yeah, I'm still, I'm about, you know, probably 80% through done on that. Okay. Yeah. And I wasn't sure what I wanted at, right? I think if you've read, I've got a blog, right? We, I blog uh -huh. a lot and I've got a specific blog, 365 at 36.5 that just chronicles this little journey. And I started it because on my son's birthday um, in, in April of 2020, because COVID had just started mm -hmm. and we were having his birthday party in our driveway with his grandparents. And it just, it infuriated me. And, um, and I can say I'm past kind of caring. The whole response to COVID infuriates me okay. because people claim follow the science. Well, my question is what science are you talking about? There's a lot of science if, out there. There's right? a lot of science, but if we're talking about the science that actually keeps people healthy, mm -hmm. that when an unknown or a new virus enters the body and the body just responds appropriately, are we talking about that science? Okay, because we're not. Because if we were, we'd be having a completely different conversation about how unhealthy America is. Right. Right. Everybody wants to say CDC is the final authority. Well, good. Let's use a stat. CDC says that 96% of the people who've been killed from COVID, quote unquote COVID, had on average 2.6 comorbidities. That means that they had 2.6 things wrong with them from a lifestyle perspective that might end up killing them anyway. Right. Right. So that leaves 4% of deaths due to a virus. Right. That is not a pandemic. Right. <laughs> okay. That's just right. not. Okay. So I started, I was, I was just, I was frustrated. I was frustrated that my son had to go through that. I was frustrated that we were having what I felt the wrong conversation. We need okay. to be having a health conversation. Um, I was frustrated that they were locking everything down and not letting people. My frustration was to the nth degree. Okay. And I said, how, I said, I got to get this under control. This is no good. And I said, well, obviously breathing and ice baths, but I need to up the game. I just need to up it. And I said, every day, and I've got to track how this is working. I've mm -hmm. got to be able to tell people, here's where I was. Here's what I did. Here's where I am now. Um, and I was very detailed initially on things, uh, you know, as far as mood and what I was doing and, you know, you know, maybe some biometrics as well, not quite as much, but then I just, I said, stop with that. How do you feel? How are you acting? Yeah. What's your environment that you're creating as the leader of your family, as the father, right? Um, and it, with, with the intention 
every day of saying, I cannot let the things that are out of my control bother me. And the only way now to manifest that and to create it and to figure the emotion that I want, right, is to get to the ice bath. Right. I've got to start being happy in that ice bath. That's it. Yeah. Now I'm going to work that. Okay. Because if that's what I'm going for, then how do I practice that? And now that's how I practice it. And I, and I can tell you definitively, you know, I just started making other decisions. This is all, I think is, we're still having, we're not, again, not done. love or hate who's in president before or after doesn't matter to me. Guess we're not looking any different right now <laughs> with our response to this thing. Uh -huh. We're not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But so I just said, look, I, now I get to make other decisions. I, I'm just not, I'm not going to read about it anymore. It's, I have my thoughts. I think I'm pretty active where I am. We, my family can control this. We can be healthy, right? We can do all those things. I don't have to worry about it anymore, yeah. right? The lockdown and all that stuff, I can control what I do for my business, right? I don't, I, I disagreed with what they're doing with schools. I get it. They're trying. Mm -hmm. I can promise you in 15 years, there's going to be some studies about what it's, what it does to you walking around with a mask on your face, Sure. all day. Yeah, right? of course. How good, how is that good? <laughs> right. Yeah. But so we said, so, you know, the schools are doing the best they can. We get it. We just don't like it. So we're going to disenroll our kids. We're going to do it ourselves until this whole thing settles down. So my point is those are not the right decisions or the wrong decisions. They, they are our decisions mm -hmm. that we were able to consciously make after I settled down and after I used the cold to figure out who I wanted to be now in this thing. I had to be somebody different than I was being. So again, a long answer to the origins of 365 at 36.5, but it's, it's made all the difference in the world. It just, I, it simply has. I think ice baths are, are an amazing way to hack uh, when you get triggered on something, right? Because yep. I've done that numerous times when something pops up and my emotions or feelings are just out of whack. And my, I can tell my mind, like I'm angry. And I'm like, let's go in the ice bath. And you go in the ice bath and you come out of that and you're in a completely different state of mind. Different, you know? different spot. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. Well, I mean, look, and I do, you know, before, before I got on, I had, I had an unusually long morning. Uh -huh. And... I was, I was a little drained. I was tired, right? I had an hour. All right. Do I take a nap? Ah, but then I'm going to wake up. I'm like, no, get, get in the ice bath, rejuvenate, get your, <laughs> get your mind right. You know, that's, it's, it's the answer every time. Like you said, you know, at least for me. Right? Yeah. Was it your second ice bath of the day then to take one, you know, or what time of the day do you normally take your ice bath? So I, you know, I've given myself some latitude on that. Now okay. the, the ideal way to do it is, First thing in the morning on an empty stomach, do your breathing, mm -hmm. then do your cold. Okay. okay. I won't bore everybody with why, right? So maybe some other day we'll get on. And I can tell you why, but I, you know, I've got, I've got a seven-year-old, a six-year-old and a two-year-old who we now homeschool. And when they are up, it's on. Yeah. So I've got to find hours to get some quiet work. So I, I, I'm an early riser. I, I wake up at four 30 so I can use that time to get work done, mm -hmm. right? I would prefer to start my day with the breathing in the cold shower, but by the time that that's over, now the kids are starting to wake up, mm -hmm. right? So what I do now is I, I, I fit it in. I just get it in. Anytime it's, in it's, the day, yeah. Yeah, it's not ideal, but I've got to prioritize. For sure. The work, you know, getting done. Um, and then, and it's fine, 
right? Yeah. Again, it's not perfect, but sometimes I'm right before bed and I'm like, all right, ice bath time, not a big deal. Right? Yeah. And, I, and what's the intention going in? Nice and calm, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, that, so that's kind of where I am right now with that stuff. Same with exercise. I'd love to be able to just do it all first thing in the morning. It's just, it's not fitting. doesn't always fit. Yeah. What, what, so if you're getting up at 4.30 in the morning, what time do you go to bed? Uh, we go to bed early, man. If, uh-huh. I, if my head's not hitting the pillow by 8, I'm like, what yeah, is going okay. on here? <laughs> right? so, so the kids are getting older, so we're letting them. We, we've kind of trained them to say, you can stay up and, and watch the end of this show, and then we're going to trust you to go to bed. And look, they can't if they're not doing that, we're going to know because we're going to hear them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but that's, yeah, that's how we make that adjustment. So early to bed, early to rise. So you get up at four 30 and then what do you do since, since you're not breathing in? We have three dogs, right? So I'm in, I'm in charge of taking care of the dogs. So we okay. get them up and running. And then I start the list of things to do, right? I've, I've typically got my days mapped out pretty well as far as client calls. And then obviously the other stuff we need to do to try to build the business. Mm -hmm. So that's where it is. I time blocked just a nice little strategy. For some reason I stopped and I don't know why. I think I just forgot to do it. And then, but I went through my calendar for a couple of weeks and said, okay, here's one hour for breathing and ice. And I just put it on the calendar. That was great. Yeah. And, and then for some reason I stopped, I, I was like, I don't, what, why did I stop doing that? So I'm going to get back to doing that just time blocking it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And same with the workout, I'm just um, trying to get that in. But so those kind of come second, even though they're still a or one and one a, but getting the kids, making sure my wife is, has what she needs to school the kids, yeah. giving her time to do her work for the business and me jumping in and both of us getting our exercise in. It's look, it is what it is. How many hours a day do you usually work? I would say it varies. Um, and, and I try not to overdo it, but I'd be surprised if I work less than 10 hours, you know, it's fair. Yeah. It, it's look, if this is an entrepreneur podcast, you, you 10 hours, the, chat, the, the challenge kids. is to not work 20 hours. That's the challenge. Like sometimes I have to put it down and say, stop. Yeah. That's it for the day. You've well, got to get on with the other things. 10 hours with three kids and three dogs and a wife, man. That's, you're getting a lot of, you're getting a lot of time for work. Like that's getting a lot good. of work in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you can't, you can only do that with support. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah. But, and then also stopping it. Yeah. Right. Look, there's some days where I'm at eight hours and I'm like, I've worked eight straight hours. I'm done. Yeah. For the day. That's enough. That's plenty. Go play with the kids. Go read a book. Go do your other stuff now. It's a challenge. Do you do any intermittent fasting, special diet type of thing? I do. I try to fast at least one day a week, okay. just a full 24-hour fast, water fast. Nice. Um, me and my wife, I about quarterly do a five-day fast. Nice. And, and those are invaluable. And again, sometimes better than the other, right? I stopped counting the hours for intermittent fasting because it was consuming me. Yeah. Like, when do I get to eat? What hour am I on? <laughs> I know how you feel through that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I stopped and I have a general kind of feeling about how long I've been uh, not eating, but if it's consuming me, I just go eat. Yeah. So not so much on that, but I do keep an eye on it. I try to go for a while, but like I said, it's just a shortcoming. I, I had the app, right. And counting down for the intermittent fast. I'd be staring at it. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're like 28 minutes left. Right? What can I do? Does it still count? Yeah. I know how you feel, man. Like I've done it. I did it for a couple of years. And then finally this past year in 2020, I was just like, man, I miss my morning smoothies too much. And, and when I got hungry, it was like pushing through that extra hour of just waiting till lunch to have the first meal. So I, I was like, I still have two meals a day and a smoothie, but uh, sometimes I hit the, the intermittent time. Sometimes I don't. So what I found was, again, the, the day fast once a week or as best I can. Like, I'm not perfect, but that's, that's what I try to do. Yeah. It helps because it, it, it kind of, just like anything else, I'll try to do it early in the week. And then I find the next couple of days, I'm pretty good. Like the next day, I'm just eating one meal and that's yeah. cool. And then the next day too. And then as I get closer to the weekend and Saturday is my cheat day, I really let it rip on Saturday. <laughs> you know, it's again, it's a challenge, but yeah. that's kind of what I try to do. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. I think, man, we're going to wrap it up there. That was an amazing chat. I really enjoyed it. If uh, Errol, if listeners want to learn out more about you, reach out, learn more about you, where's the best place they can do that at? Yeah, I appreciate that. So mm -hmm. Leader193 is my company and my website is Leader193. We've got a pretty solid website about what we offer, what we do, when we're doing it. Um, so you can go as far as Wim Hof and our seminars that we put on. We've started putting on uh, about a monthly free webinar. Um, we've got the next one coming up oh, tomorrow. This isn't going to be out tomorrow, but I think we've got another one coming up in March and we're starting a mastermind of our own. So you can find that stuff there. So leader193.com for fun on Instagram. I'm at leader193 and Facebook at leader193. And those are kind of my main social platforms as well. When knowing that I was going to interview, I was doing some research and I was like, what is leader 193? I wonder what 193 stands for. But I found out it's the number of your buds team for SEALs that's, training, right? That's right. That's That was my hell week class, 193. <laughs> so just yeah. paying homage to something that, you know, time in my life that meant a lot to me. Very cool. Yeah. Errol, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I enjoyed the chat a lot. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. No, thank I you. appreciate you having me on, Chris, and I hope your listeners got something out of it. Thanks. I, I'm sure they will. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.